Please take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 16. About the end of January, we began a series going through the book of Romans, and we will conclude that series today. The uh, summary, the very, very brief summary is this. On the opening pages, he tells us that the Gospel is about a righteousness that comes from God apart from the law, it's received by faith so that the righteous would live by faith. And then Paul spends several chapters describing why we need a righteousness that comes from outside of us. It is because every human being, without exception, is by nature guilty of sin, condemned before God, enslaved by sin, and powerless to free himself, and shamed because of sin, and therefore outcast and rejected. But God, that's where the transition happens. In, in chapter 3, Paul says, but God. God did something. He sent His Son in the likeness of human flesh, and He condemned sin in the flesh of His Son. Jesus made this remarkable transfer where your sins, if you have trusted in Christ, have been taken from you and placed on Him. And in the place of those sins, you have been given His righteousness. Your sins are gone. They were punished on the cross. You bear them no more, but you bear the righteousness of Jesus, one you didn't earn, one that wasn't yours, an obedience that God now sees as yours by a gift. And so you're righteous before God. You are now as righteous as you could possibly be before God. But then, God is going to take that righteousness that He has declared and given to you, and He's going to work it into you. By His Spirit, He has united you to Christ, and there is a real union with Him in which flowing because of Jesus and by the Spirit into your life is the heavenly life. And it's changing you from the inside out. And so there is a power from heaven that is enabling you to put sin to death. You can trust that God is now at work and you can begin to look at the sin that remains and say, I'm going to drive you out. I'm going to put you to death. And I'm going to win. I have the Spirit of God. I'm not a slave anymore. And then you hear these great words that though we were once shamed, outcast, and rejects, God says, now nothing can separate you from my love. I have given you the Spirit of God that you might cry out as an adopted son of a father. You are brought into the family. You are received as a child. You are welcomed. And it wipes out the shame. And so every condemnation, every powerlessness, every shame, gone. And in its place, righteousness and power and acceptance. That is the Gospel. That if you trust in Christ, those things are yours because of Jesus. But now we look in chapter 16 and Paul is ready to close his letter and he's 
going to give them a picture of what this new gospel life looks like, how we continue in it, how we continue in it with each other, and how we continue in it in our faith and trusting and in this world. And so that's what we're going to read. And I know of a few churches where uh, the pastor doesn't read the Scriptures, but somebody from the church will, an elder or someone else, and it's because of passages like these with tons and tons of names in them. I will do my best. Before we read them, let's pray. Our Father, we pray that You would make the reading of Your Word pleasing to You and powerful for Your people. We pray that Your Spirit would come and take the words that are here and though they seem like just the the close of a letter, there's riches that are there if we would look and chew upon them and think of them. For You inspired Paul to write these words just as you have every other one. And this is your voice. And it's a description of what we might expect the Gospel to do in us. And and, and the direction we want to aim our lives. And so we pray, would you help us understand, help us believe, help us respond, and by your Spirit do marvelous and eternal works in our hearts for what we do for the next few minutes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 16, verse 1. This is God's Word. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epaenetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphaena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brother who are with them. Greet Philogion, somebody, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason so, Potter, my kinsman, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me, 
To the whole church greets you, Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and to the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is God's Word. It's completely true and is utterly trustworthy. I remember a little bit about being in 11th grade and thinking, all right, now's the time i got to start preparing for the uh, college entrance. i got to make sure I'm ready to fill out all the applications. I've got to make sure I've got the right stuff to be able to put on uh, applications for scholarships. And so 11th graders go into what I like to call uh, organization collecting mode. As you try to join a bunch of organizations that will help add to the list you can put in the paragraph, here's what I do. And you look especially like those organizations that do noble things, you know, that serve the community and, and care for the needy. You like organizations that are selective, if you can uh, get in one of those. And I remember particularly one, I got an, uh, uh, the invitation in the mail to join the who's who of American students. Well, who's who? That sounds great. And that seems fabulous. And here I could put this on my list. I'm reading the instructions and just send in $18 and you're in. That's the registration fee. I think, well, that seems pretty reasonable. And there's no other demands at all. So I show my parents and they explain to me that that's not really quite as select as it may sound. And that, uh, you know, anyone who sends in their money can get in. And so I asked a few friends and just about everybody had gotten the select invitation and my bubble burst a little. I was not the elite that I thought I was. And, you know, really, what good is the club that all you do is get in and it doesn't really do anything else? You don't meet, you don't do anything, it's just to get in and there it is, your name's on a list. And I want to use that as a little picture for what I think is the worst kind of distortion of Christianity. There, there is a huge sense of uh, among American Christians that the idea of, of what Christianity is is this get in and then that's it. You get in, you get your name on the list, you pray the prayer, you do the thing, whatever it is that gets you started, and you, maybe you'll show up at some things at church, but by and large, it doesn't bleed over into much of life. I want you to see that Paul anticipates that Christianity, that the person who has received this righteousness that comes through faith, the gift of Christ in the Gospel, is someone who begins to see these rippling effects all through life. That to continue in the Gospel isn't just to start, but to let it begin to grow in all of life. And I want you to see three things he expects to happen among those who have trusted Christ. The first is they would continue in community. I'm not going to read every greeting here again. Uh, I'll be glad for you to go and read it on your own. But I want to point out a few things about this community. At the Roman church, Paul says, I want you to greet these certain people. And I want you to see a few things. 
that might not be absolutely evident on first reading. Uh, among those names that sound all foreign to us, some of them are Jewish in nature. Prisca and Aquila and um, possibly Phoebe. Others are very Greek and Roman, uh, like Junia. That would be a, a name that probably only a Roman uh, citizen would use. And so you get these two, and if you're familiar with your Bible, two very different races and heritages that are meeting here in this one church and greeting one another. This is very distinct. The Jew and the Gentile would be sitting next to each other and there is no other place on planet earth where that would happen except in the churches in the first century. Very, very different. Brought together for this one purpose. But not just Jew and Roman. There's also uh, some in here who are most certainly slaves. Let me give you just a couple here. Uh, look at verse 8. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. Both of those names were common slave names. And, and the reason we know that is because, well, they, 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 have, they sound like things to you. Ampliatus sounds a little bit like you know, amplified or amped up. It's because Ampliatus would be roughly like calling somebody, you know, big dude or grown up. You know that slave that I got that was a big guy? I'm going to call him Big Guy. That's what his name will be. And so he's known in the church as Big Guy. Urbanus, you guys know what that sounds like, right? Urban. So some guy, some master finds or purchases a slave in the city, and he goes, all right, you're city dude. That's your name at my house now. You're city dude. And so he's known in the church as city dude. He gets these names. These are the kinds of things that slaves would be called. In Acts, there's a, a scene where a fellow named Secundus is uh, on a, uh, a church group leading to be emissaries to another church. Secundus means second. He was the second slave that we bought. So we call him you know, second. That was part of the ordinary church experiences you had meeting in the church these slaves. But... In the passage in Acts 20 where Secundus is on the emissary, there's a fellow named Aristarchus. Aristarchus is aristocrat. He was a guy from the ruling class. And so when the church picked two people to go together to represent them, they picked an aristocrat and a slave. Here, right after you get greetings to big dude and city dude, you get greetings to the family of Aristobulus. You hear that aristocrat in there. It's a ruling class guy. Aristobulus was the grandson of Herod the Great. You've read about him in the Gospels. He was part of the kingly family among the Jews who had given allegiance to Rome. And here he is with his family sitting in church with the slaves. After him is Narcissus. If you read of Narcissus in this time period, he was... Uh, an advisor to Claudius, the emperor in Rome. To, to comprehend what you're seeing here, I want you to imagine going to church in Washington, D.C. 
man. You're sitting on the pew and you're sitting there and someone sits next to you, another person sits around and starts to fill in and you start overhearing conversations and you look around and sitting behind you is the chief of staff at the White House. The person who has the ear of the president more than perhaps any other. And you're like, wow, that's, that's really interesting. Sitting in front of you, you overhear the conversation of another family uh, regularly in the church and they're talking about their Thanksgiving holiday and one of them said, I, I, it was going to be really nice, but then I had to go to work. Walmart has moved their Thanksgiving sale back, and I had to be in at 1 o'clock on Thanksgiving Day. And I had to work for 14 hours without really much of a break. It was so crazy and so messy. And you know what? Despite that, I'm still going to need my food stamps this month. I've got somebody who's got the ear of the president and someone who doesn't know how they're going to pay bills despite all the work that they could possibly do. And they're sitting next to each other. And then I look around and I see people from different races and different nations. The skin color stands out. I want you to imagine this church in the middle of Washington, D.C. That's the church in Rome. In the middle of the capital city, those who have the ear of the emperor and those who don't even have the ear of their masters. And they're sitting next to each other, shoulder to shoulder, and worshiping God together. There are men and women recognized in this list. About, uh, not quite half and half, but it's remarkable. And both men are, and women are complimented as those who really, really work on behalf of the church. And then, you not just see this great diversity, but you see this powerful affection. Greet, 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 greet. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Pay attention. And it ends with this. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now, I always do this with my students at Grace Christian. I say, so you guys obey this verse? How many of you kiss people at church as you're greeting? And they're all like, mm-mm. Well, that was part of the culture. You've probably seen it. If you've been traveling, you might see it more in European cultures where they kiss each other on the cheek as greetings. We are more like handshake. Or perhaps even better would be a hug. That, that's really what's being, what's being described here. Be affectionate in your greetings. People in the church ought to say, I feel welcomed here. People want me here. And you ought to say, I want people here. And I want them to feel like I want them here. There's an affection that happens because, you see, out there, outside these walls, there's all kinds of, of worldviews. There's all kinds of competition for, for your mind and your heart. But in here, you have people who say, we have one vision. One Lord. One person who's after our heart, and, and we're going to encourage each other. And so together, we have this thing that's in common. And I'm glad you're here because you share this vision of life with me that is at the core of who we are. Bigger than our politics, bigger than our recreations that we prefer, bigger than our music styles, bigger than the clothes we wear, bigger than our economic place in the culture, bigger than all these things is what unites us that we have a common Lord and He's all we want in heaven or on earth. 
And then you see in this community not just diversity and affection, but, but sacrifice. Look at verse 2. I want you to welcome and greet and commend Phoebe. Here's why. At the end of the verse you see, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. You know what that means, right? That Phoebe had some money and she made sure that Paul could do his ministry. She was my patron. She made sure that it happened. Go through this passage and see how many times my fellow worker, someone who works hard, is mentioned. You're going to see it over and over again. And then you, you see him talking about, in verse 3 for instance, my fellow workers in Christ who risk their necks. Or you see in verse 7, greet Adronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. Here were people who were sacrificing for each other and for the church. Willing to go to prison, willing to be in, well, in the way of possibly dying, and willing to give up their money, willing to work hard. There's a, a sacrifice for one another that marks this community. Does the gospel have that kind of place in your life? I want you to understand, this isn't just people who say, man, this club is tough. I've got to do a lot of stuff. I just want one where I can pay and show up when I want. That, that's not it. It's not that, hey, here are some club rules. You better keep them or you'll get kicked out or you get penalized. The picture is these people that you see here who develop this diversity and this affection and this sacrifice, they've done so because it's become the biggest thing in their life. They've become so desperately devoted to Jesus because He's given them righteousness and the favor of God that they can't help but do these things. As they look around and say, here are other people for whom Jesus died. They're my people. Whatever they need. Here's what I'm saying. This idea of community that you're seeing unfold from Romans 16 isn't something that you go, hey, that's part of my normal existence. The problem isn't that you don't like people enough. The problem is you haven't tasted Jesus enough. You haven't recognized what you've been given in His righteousness. And so I want you to go back there and say, Jesus, what is it that I've got? So that that righteousness becomes the most important thing in your life. And then you begin to see it in the others. And that becomes the thing to which you devote your life. I'm going to do the next couple of things quickly. It's my, my way. My wife tells me I always spend too much time on the first point. The second point is that there's going to be continuing conflict. If there's continuing community, there'll be continuing conflict. Look at verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetite. He says, I know what's going to happen. You're going to start having divisions in this church. You have diversity and affection and somebody's going to slip in and begin to separate you. You're going to show cracks in this union and I want you to watch out and protect yourself and don't let them do it. And the way they're going to create those divisions, which we don't want, they're going to do it by the things they teach. Doctrines that aren't the ones I've taught you. 
So in other words, here's what he's saying. If you want to have this profound community built with diversity and affection, you have to build it on good doctrine. You have to know the Scriptures. You have to know what they teach and say, I'm committed to those teachings. And that's what will hold us together. Not our worship styles, though we ought to think about those. Not the music that we sing, not the kind of clothes that we wear. None of those things are the ultimate things. Um, my kids this morning were like, they saw the wreaths hanging up on the church. They were like, oh, are the candles up? It's lovely, but it's not ever going to be what unites us. What can hold us together has to be stronger than those things. What holds us together is this doctrine that the apostles taught. We must know it and be committed to it. I promise that would be shorter. The third one. We have continuing community, continuing conflict, and then continuing confidence. Verse 25. Now to Him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. It's through this preaching, it's through the Scriptures that God is going to strengthen you so that you can continue. See, this is my point at the beginning. If the community thing is hard, it's not because you don't have enough affection for each other, it's because you need more of Christ. You need to drink Him in more and take Him in more and delight in Him more. And then you begin to see the community thing happen. God is the one who's able to strengthen you so that you keep on in this gospel. God is the one who will win. Look at verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Like that. The God of peace will win the war. The God of peace will destroy the enemy. And peace will reign from then on. God is going to win and He's going to get strength and the result is that He will be praised. Verse 27, to the only wise God be glory forevermore in Jesus Christ. You see, the reason God wants you to persevere to the end is it glorifies Him. His mercies triumph over every obstacle. The reason this community is built together is because there's a million things that would separate us and divide us. But God will be praised, and so He strengthens you so that you can be together, so you can have this diverse affection, so that you sacrifice for each other, so that you recognize those false doctrines and reject them, so that you are built together on the one sturdy foundation, the Lord Jesus and His death and resurrection. God will be praised because He will make His church stand. In um, Our Daily Bread, the little book that gets passed out monthly with little brief devotions in them, there was a, an account uh, in the life of William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce was the British politician who became absolutely convinced that there could be a peaceful way to get rid of slavery in England and began to work for it. It took him years. And after ten years of trying, and yet still unsuccessful, the account said that he was tired and frustrated. So Wilberforce turned to his Bible and began to leaf through it, and a piece of paper fell out. And he picked it up, and it was a letter that John Wesley, before he died, had written to him. Shortly before Wesley had died. 
Herbalforce read it. This, here's what it said. Unless the divine power has raised you up, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing that abominable practice of slavery, which is the scandal of religion of England and of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But, if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them stronger? All of them together stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and the power of His mind. If God has made you righteous, if God has associated His name with you, if He has begun this work in you, does it really matter what obstacles might get in the way? Does it, does it really matter what things might make this difficult? Will He not strengthen you so that He develops the community that He pictures here in us? So that you are able to remain firm in the midst of contending for the faith so that you are able to have confidence, not in yourself and your strength and your intellect and your being able to recognize these things or effect them, but your confidence that God has called you to this very purpose and no obstacle can stop Him. Go on in the name of God and in the power of His mind. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the community of faith in Rome. That they were to bridge major gaps and divides. Help us to do that. To, to, to see more richly and powerfully what the Gospel can do in people to make us glad to sacrifice, to make us glad to show affection in the midst of great diversity. And, and, and make us the people who are willing to study and know and recognize the truth from that which is false and to cling to what is true. To not be divided over false teachings. And above all, Make sure we know that our confidence is not in our ability to recognize the moment or to create community, but it's in you because you strengthen us for this task. Father, we pray that you'd be pleased to strengthen your church for Jesus' sake. We pray in his name. Amen. <laughs>